Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the People Who Surf podcast. I am your host, Chris Morrow, and my guest today is the renowned surfing journalist, Nick Carroll. Nick has been in the business for more than 40 years. He's been the editor of Tracks, Surfing Magazine, and Deep, and written for mainstream outlets like Rolling Stone, Men's Journal, and Outside. He's also written several books, and right now, he's teaming up with fellow Aussie journalist Sean Doherty to tackle his next book about the history of pro surfing. Nick is a historic figure himself. More than 20 years ago, he was named one of the 50 most influential surfers in Australia, and his contributions have only increased since then. Of course, one of his most significant roles was being big brother to two-time world champion Tom Carroll, who won back-to-back titles in 1983 and 84. Matter of fact, it was Nick who helped Tom clinch his second world title by eliminating Sean Thompson at Bells. Sean was the last obstacle standing in Tom's path that year. His amazing journalism career has in many ways overshadowed his status as an athlete. Many have forgotten that Nick was a two-time Australian national champion in 1979 and 81. Today, at 59, he's still a competitive beast. He channels a lot of his energy into swim, paddle, and endurance races. In fact, he's coaching some of Australia's best talent in that arena. And he's getting ready for his seventh Molokai Challenge this year. I was fortunate enough to nab Nick on his latest swing through California and we were able to catch up on a number of topics. I hope you enjoy this one. We're just going to roll it, man. Okay. Nick Carroll. Hi. Man, I'm so psyched. This is an honor, actually, to have you here. Well, thank you, Chris. So this is just a quick little swing for you through California. It's one of your, what, how many times a year do you get over this way? Uh, A couple of times a year these days. Um, I'm always interested in what's happening here, and this was a good opportunity for a few different reasons. That boardroom show was on. I was interested in that. Uh, some of the stuff there was really intriguing to me. Yeah, I saw your piece that you wrote in Coastal Watch about the sustainable debate and all that kind of stuff. was cool. I'm totally fascinated by that with the surfboards. I really like when you can connect things that are happening in surf culture or whatever to things that are happening in the wider world as well Mm -hmm. and that one really seems to me to pitch into a really major argument that's going on in uh, the world of uh, manufacturing and consumer consciousness you know between this idea of sustainability and the idea of like high volume turnover um, what they used to call planned obsolescence before they got much more intricate with it and started playing every angle in that game to try to get people to buy new stuff all the time. Uh, and in surfboards, there's, those two things have always been in a bit of tension. Absolutely, um, yeah. And it uh, feels to me like they're uh, in real tension these days, you know, because there's such a gap between big manufacturers and little manufacturers. Mm-hmm. You know, such a big gap. And so... Uh, there's a lot to be sorted out there in that gap. In some ways, it's it's not a new debate. It's something that seems like surfers have been having this sort of conversation for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it feels to me like it was kind of born out of uh, the same time as modern surfing. You know, that, that that's where, uh, you know, kind of hippie values leaked into surfing at that point and, mm-hmm. and everyone went all like, you know... Um, look after Mother Earth and all that stuff, you know, but did they really mean it? Probably not because they didn't really carry on like that, did they? I mean... <laughs> well, it, it coincided with the plastic revolution. <laughs> yeah, totally. So the, the, that's been that tension there ever since between, the, you know, the the purported values 
uh, that surfers like to think they have at some level and then the real values that they have, which is really just sort of full on like, where's the next wave and what's my next board? Yeah, everybody's got a little bit of that do as I say, not as I do thing, you know. But I thought, you know, the piece you wrote, actually, it seems to me the longevity argument is, you know, because there's no panacea. There truly is no panacea. So in, in the absence of a panacea, it's built to last. And it's it's nice today that you can get some boards that are built to last. Oh, man, I just, you know, it's... It's funny you say that, Chris. Like I've just um, been spending the last uh, probably year mm-hmm. slowly building up like a quiver of boards that I kind of want to have last for the next 20 years because I figure like I'm nearly 60 years old. You know, I've got a really kind of dynamic 10 years ahead of me and then a kind of a slow decline, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, so I want some of these boards to see me all the way through that 20 years. So... Uh, that means they have to be built uh, really well uh, and they have to be designed uh, beautifully um, so they can withstand a lot of different waves and they can withstand a fair bit of punishment. Yep. And um, uh, I've slowly been drifting that way with that group of boards, but like at the same time, I'm like as bad as anyone else. Like I see a new board, you know, a, a board at, at a show like that boardroom show or whatever, or, yeah. you know, from... Or you know Morris Cole, my buddy, you know he des- yep. might design something new, and yep. and and I'm like I'm all over it. It's like give me more boards. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, the FOMO thing is hard to turn off oh, when man. you see something that looks really fun and different to ride. Yeah, and it stimulates. I mean that you know people write off that whole idea of like high volume turnover, but it does have its benefits. And one of the big benefits is that it encourages innovation. Uh, because people are looking for something new to sell next year that uh, causes them to try new stuff, and sometimes that new stuff works way better than the old stuff. So yeah, you know, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Completely. So I, your other big project, obviously, is your history of surfing book. That's your latest one that you and Sean Doherty are collaborating on. Yeah. Tell me how how you're looking on that, and where <laughs> when can we expect it? <laughs> <laughs> this thing's like, you know what? Um, uh, okay, about like five years or so ago, um, I wrote a book about me and my brother, and um, I, I got through that, and I, and I thought, well, what what's next? Mm-hmm. And it just felt like to me like that was an automatic segue into a kind of like slightly, possibly slightly sardonic, um, but quite rounded history of professional surfing, and and that's what this is. It's it's a it's a it's a kind of a you know, it's a story about professional surfing, mm-hmm. um, like why it came to be um, and what place it's occupied in the surf culture, but then also about the culture that it created for itself, this crazy freaking carnival hurtling around the world, <laughs> you know, people getting on and off, you know, yeah. getting booted off, yeah, getting pushed on, <laughs> carrying on, doing stuff they would never have done if they'd stayed at home. Right, right. of course, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and how it struggles with its self-identification as a sport, um, the tension between uh, that idea and the broader idea of surfing as a kind of um, a way of life for people and something a lot broader than a sport. Uh, there's real tension there. Uh, and so I was really fascinated by it, and so I thought, right, I'll, I'll do that. But And I thought about it for a little while. I thought, you know what, I can't do this all by myself because it's too big. Yeah. 
And so I sort of inveigled Sean into it. And um, uh, honestly, it's proven to be a much bigger task than either of us thought. So many threads. So many freaking threads. Uh, so I guess we're kind of just starting to get to the pointy end of the writing of it right now. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll be finished of it by the end of this year and uh, then everyone can read it just in time for the Olympic Games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Are the Olympics, in your mind, going to be triumphant moment or giant black eye? I, I think if people are, like, trying to ride it to, like, success or failure, they're kind of missing the point, mm-hmm. you know? Um uh, I think it's really, it's going to kind of be about the parade, you know, the, all the countries getting together and like walking up the beach, Doing you know, the carrying thing. their yeah. flags and shit, you know, and you'll see that and you'll go, wow, I'm seeing the rainbow nations of surfing all together here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a cool thing about it. Um, you know, surfing is just one of many sports in the Olympics it's probably not going to garner that much attention, um, but it kind of won't matter, I think. Uh, if people are looking at it as some sort of saviour of the business of surfing, um, I think they're out of their minds. <laughs> It'll be over in a flash, and then what, are you going to sit around for four years? No. Right. But I'll tell you what, I, I bet you, you know, even hardened cynics about the Olympic Games, mm-hmm. they are, they're, they're going to enjoy that, seeing that parade up the beach. They, they're going to get a little a kick out of it they didn't expect mm-hmm. and vice versa people who have got all the huge number of hopes riding on it that it's going to like shoot surfing into the freaking stratosphere they, they are going to experience the opposite they're going to be disappointed by it. to understand Nick you obviously have to go back to his early years he grew up the middle child in a family of classic Irish heritage Many of his ancestors came to Australia in the early 1800s, working in the mining industry. His grandfather, George, chased gold discoveries in Western Australia and New Zealand, and then fought in the Boer War and World War I. When he finally settled, he opened up a few shops, including a pub and eventually a news agency. Nick's father, Vic Carroll, spent some of his formative years at that news agency. By the time he was married, and Nick, Tom, and their older sister Josephine were on the scene, Vic Carroll was an esteemed editor, running some of the most influential newspapers in the entire country. Well, we should probably mention here, your father was a right. pretty big news guy. Can yeah. you, you uh, Condolences, by the way, because yeah, I know thanks, you just, just lost him. And Can you explain, just for the layman, who your father was? Because it's a, it's a, I had no idea. Yeah, okay. Well... <laughs> well um, my dad springs from Irish stock originally. Uh, he was sort of, I don't know, maybe a blend of me and Tom in some ways. Like he was observant and um, a bit sceptical like I am. But he's also like a kind of a loner, I think, and, and a wanderer like Tom is. Mm. And so anyway, he had this extraordinary mind. And it carried him into journalism, which in the 1950s and 60s was... Um, um, I think a much more valued job than it is today. Yeah, it uh, certainly wasn't the mud pit it is today. Yeah, not the mud pit it is today. My dad would look around 
today's world of journalism and he'd just sneer at it and he'd say, they're all in the look at me brigade, aren't they? Exactly. They're more interested in their own brand than they are in the news they're trying to speak to. But Mm. that's bye-bye. He wasn't bitter about that. Um, Anyway, he he, um, became one of Australia's great journalists. Um, You know, a lot of uh, his peers have told me often that he's probably the greatest journalist in Australian history. He um, uh, pioneered the skillful explanation of economics to Australian people, which is no mean feat. That's <laughs> tricky. Uh, he did that through a newspaper called The Financial Review that he took um, to great heights um, professionally and in terms of the way it affected uh, the Australian political conversation. And uh, he also ran the Sydney Morning Herald, which is Australia's biggest daily newspaper, really, uh, and went on and did a whole bunch of other things in journalism. And um, so that was him in the public, you know, in private. He was uh, quite a different person uh, with Tom and me and our older sister. Mm. Uh, he was a much gentler person than that, Um would imply, right? You would think, ooh, big shot journalist. Right. He wasn't one of those like drunk journalists who yabber on all the time. <laughs> you know, most of the people who Dad employed and grew into great journalists under him r- remember more how silent he could be. Mm. He would just kind of look at them. You know, people would come in, they'd bring a story in, and he'd look at them, and they'd start getting nervous, and then they'd, and because he looked at them they would then go back and start correcting their story. <laughs> One of the Just the bullshit detectors way high. Ooh, very high bullshit detector, my dad. Yeah, yeah. In nineteen sixty nine the Carroll family was dealt a heavy blow. Janet, Nick's mother, passed away after a year long battle with pancreatic cancer. Nick was just ten. His little brother Tom was seven, and Joe, his sister, was 12. To this day, Tom has only a few faint memories of his mother. Of course, the one that stands out is the Coolite surfboard she got him for Christmas. Finally, he wouldn't have to fight over the family's surfer plane with Nick and Joe. As for Nick, he was much more aware of his mom's struggle, but did everything he could at the time to block it out. He wrote about that period in his Tom Carroll book about not being at the funeral, being looked after by neighbors that day. He remembers Joe crying, Tom looking uncertain, and himself thinking that that was that. It was time to look after each other now. As for Vic Carroll, he dealt with it the only way he knew how, which was burying himself in his work. He was never one to express his love directly. As Tom wrote, it was never really spoken about, but he showed it through support. Nick, meanwhile, felt that after his mom passed away, there was an acceleration of trust between the kids and their father. We always paid great attention to Dad. We we always had the deepest respect for him, partly because he was pretty good at letting us off the hook. Uh, One of the the things, one of the stories that Tom and I told at his memorial to all his old journalist buddies who had no idea about how he was as a parent Mm. was... The way in which when we were like 11, 12 years old, 13 years old, 
we would we were just getting so into surfing. We were just frothing, you know. We would we got the morning of the soundtrack, and we would sit in a bedroom. We'd listen to the soundtrack, oh, and we'd reimagine the movie in our heads by the soundtrack. And then we'd go out and try and find surfing situations like that, and copy what we'd seen in the movie, and then go back and listen to it again. That is so that just is so epic, flipping that- out, and <laughs> so. You know, every now and then we'd express a wish to like go surf some spot like up or down the coast, you know. Mm-hmm. And so Dad would go, okay, and he'd chuck us in the car, right, uh, with some a couple of sleeping bags and a tent or whatever and, um, you know, a dollar or so <laughs> in our pocket. <laughs> and he'd drive us up to the spot, you know, it might have been like 100 miles out of town. Okay. Uh, and he'd find a camping area and say, there you go, and he'd just leave us there. Awesome. For like a week, we'd just be in the bush. And you'd be what? How old? Ah, oh, 13. Oh, my know? gosh. So I was a real um, uh, stoker when we did that. I mean, I'm sure like today you'd probably be hauled in front of a judge for doing that shit. But Exactly. But what it really did was, you know, it bred a real lot of trust between us and dad because mm. we really trusted him to um, let us do it. You know, and we were stoked that he trusted us that we would pull it off and nothing would happen. And we never got hurt doing that stuff. You know, it it taught us a lot about, um, I don't know, the the adventure of surfing and how it could really pervade your mind. You know, well, I imagine just the camaraderie that that kind of little outing would give you and your brother as well. <laughs> it's just semi Lord of the Flies, but also. <laughs> A, a lot of both those things, yeah, 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 for sure. Like a lot of the time, we'd have a buddy tag along or whatever, and mm-hmm. um, funny shit happened. Like you know, we uh, one one trip we had all our food packed in in a in a corner of the clearing, and then woke up and we found like a goanna, a big kick ass monitor lizard. You know, and they yeah, grow okay. to like eight feet long or whatever. Those things they, are gnarly, gnarly. Anyway, a goanna had come down out of the trees and eaten half our food. <laughs> <laughs> we had to just like scare it off and like. Far out. <laughs> then had to go and like um you know, try and find some more food. Oh, that's you classic. Know. Uh but that sort of thing, it's not survivor or anything. Uh it's not you know, you'll never see photos of us doing that shit. Right. We're not gonna post that on Facebook. <laughs> Still happened. <laughs> of course it wasn't clear to Vic, Nick or Tom what the surfing path was going to amount to. There was plenty of structure on the beach and lessons to be learned, but the path to any kind of career was far from clear. I think he was a little bit worried about, you know, how it might interfere with our um, ability to earn a living, mm. you know. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of those old guys down at Newport. Dad used to swim with this bunch of old guys down there, and they were all like, well, you know, ha, ha, you're, not, you're never going to make a living doing that, you know. Like, yeah. what are you guys doing? You know, I'm sure you're having fun, but, you know, they'd all grown up in an era where they were like, in the whole world, there were like a hundred different kinds of jobs. There was like a lawyer, accountant, journalist like my dad, doctor, you know, tradesman, pretty much it. You know, they they couldn't foresee a world where people would just go surfing and actually be paid for it. By the early 1970s, Nick and Tom were part of a growing Gromit Hood pack, swarming the inside lineup at Sydney's northern beach of Newport. One of their fellow Gromits was Derek Hind, who would become another famous pro and surfing journalist himself. I ran into Derek a few months ago and asked him about those early days. In typical Derek fashion, he painted a pretty vivid picture of their wonder years. 
so I've added some of his color to Nick's. Every, every kid of my age had a dog in a dragster bike and the ability to light a fire at 4 a.m. at the beach. So in the wintertime, when we'd get out of the water, we'd just be warming ourselves up and then we'd be onto the bus at 8 a.m. So it was, it was with that spirit that um, we scurried about surfing the little banks up and down, which were a bit like uh, T Street, mm-hmm. except there was a little wind and sea rock thrown out amongst it that the older group, was allowed to surf. We weren't. There was a fair bit of uh, wildness going on, but still, not for a 16, 17-year-old kid like me that was still completely into dragsters and his dogs and the fires at the beach. To me, that was pure surfing. There was no need to do anything else. And even at that age, myself and uh, two of my best friends, uh, the Walker brothers, now Dougal Walker, uh, who did well at the pipe that one year, he was the youngest. Mm. He wasn't involved in this, but his older brothers, Alastair and Gordon, they were my best mates. Uh, Alastair was the apprentice pastry cook at uh, the local pie shop, so what could be better than rocking down at the beach at 4 a.m., getting an apple turnover with cream, <laughs> and then just hitting the beach? Now, in the early 70s, the pecking order at Newport Peak was a tough one to crack. There were at least a dozen older surfers holding court there, preventing the young kids from really paddling outside on the main peak. But two exploding trends soon had a devastating impact on that older generation. Heroin and motorbikes. Because of the Kawasaki Mach 3, the fastest production bike uh, for its generation in history, because of that motorbike, we graduated into the peak line up two years earlier than we would have no because maimings and deaths of the older crew yeah. with a fair bit of shall we say smack thrown in so in those days it was the speedball fastest motorbike in the world smack on the downtime yeah a lot of motorbike accidents and uh and a lot of junk and um, that crew it just pretty much destroyed their spirits, you know, um, and they were they they were gone from the scene by the time we began to surf for real, mm. and it it was odd it, it left us this real open door, and we just had this whole like scene to ourselves. We just make our own lives up, and of course, a lot of them ended up either moving to uh, the hippie zones or across to Margaret River. Not necessarily to get the better surfer's dream, but to escape the nightmare. One of the most powerful cultural influences on surfing in Australia is the surf club. While a handful existed in California, they were widespread in Australia, growing deep community roots and strong rivalries. Club contests became the central training ground for young talent. In northern Sydney, there were a variety of clubs that existed near Newport. But after a couple of them collapsed in the early 70s, Derek, Nick, and a handful of Newport Peak locals began piecing together the remnants. The result was Newport Plus. The timing couldn't have been better. The fledgling pro tour was starting to catch fire. And by 1981, the Newport Plus crew was dominant, with six surfers sitting in the top 30.
you know, that board riding club culture in Sydney sprung up mostly because of the geography of the beaches. There's a headland, then a beach. It's about maybe half a mile long, then another headland. Right, it's covey so, and stuff. Fuck yeah. So it's like, it's like it's your valley, you know? Yeah. Uh, how green was my valley, you know? Well, fuck your valley. We're coming over to get you. <laughs> and, <laughs> so there was a lot of that. It was super tribal, really tribal. Yeah. And, and hysterical way to grow up as a surfer. It was just phenomenal. It's impossible to overstate how important club surfing was. Uh, Corky Carroll, Lopez, Ted Spencer, they came for guest stints at Avalon because it was such a cool beach. But the main thing here was that that uh, bottom level in the A grade of relegation, which the Palm Beach Club perpetually faced, was offset by the top level of B grade, which the Avalon Club aspired to get through. So there was constant, can we, can't we, can we, can't we? And in the end, both clubs went, we can't. And it split asunder, and the remnants uh, ended up back at the beach at Newport, went, righto, and my brother and I, the Walker brothers, uh, the Hayward brothers, the Carroll brothers, um, got together and formed a club based around the local surf shop that had come down called Ocean Shores, um, done by uh, a married couple, Charlie and Dale Ryan. Charlie's wife was the one who came up with Newport Plus, because as I was saying, the club's too small. We were going to like junior contests and stuff like that and meeting people and, you know, starting hanging around with um, people from outside of our little world, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and a few of them didn't really have a club to join. Bondi had been a phenomenal uh, club from about 74 to 76, cutting edge. But then Steve Corrigan, uh, a guy that could pull, ha- uh, pull roundhouse full rail driving 360s on his forehand died in a car crash it it set the whole club back his uh younger brother ant corrigan was uh, right on par with shane haran there was a guy called matt hepworth Uh, joe engel had just left from bondi to go to burley it was all happening down there but we were lucky enough to go down there and defeat them um Richard Cram and Shane had been competing against Tom and the Juniors. Mm-hmm. But when we beat them with a bunch of unheralded guys, it ended up, they were wondering, whoa, what was that? What was that? So a couple of kids from Avalon, a couple of kids from Bondi, you know, they wanted to join. And, and we were like into that because they were our buddies. And we thought, well, we can, you know, we'll be hotter, you know, we'll all be ripping. Yeah. And uh, the cherries were Richard Cram and George Wales from Bondi. Oh, wow. So they, they were, you were pulling from, from all kinds of places. Well, the thing is, we <laughs> weren't necessarily pulling. They were coming. You know, I'm into these points of tension in surf culture, and I think there's a great point of tension here. The, that, that thing that Sevo said about, like, you know, surfing gives you this place where you can be alone with your thoughts, you know? Yeah. To be honest, that's always rung with a tiny bit of unintended menace, you mm-hmm. know? I don't think men should be alone with their thoughts. <laughs> it's not that great. But um, You're not, better off talking to somebody. Better off talking to someone. But, <laughs> like, the club thing is, like, almost the opposite of that. It's, it's, a, it's a communal sense of yourself as a surfer and that you bounce off other surfers to get better and uh, you have this fellowship and camaraderie. And even today... 
um, you know, I surf a lot. I surf a lot at my home break still. Hmm. And uh, I'll go down there on any given day and there'll be, you know, a handful of original founding members of Newport Plus there mm. surfing their brains out. They're guys have been tradesmen and stuff all their lives. Still really, really good surfers. And we're still all in it together. We've got all this incredible history together and we just know each other's shit and yeah. it's super comfortable. It's really cool. It's so funny you, you mentioned that because, you know, you, you just think like how much more enjoyable is your average session out at Newport or any little lineup where people are actually conversing and talking with one another, as opposed to like old school Rocky Point, where it's every man for himself just trying to get a photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I I've got to say I sort of enjoy both. Like I pretty much enjoy any surfing environment, but yeah. I, I could I can. Uh, but like one is you put your helmet on and you go out there and you're like, <laughs> you know you're like ready to just battle. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. And the other's like a social gathering, you know? Yeah, but like I'll tell you what, like Newport Newport Peak is never quite the social gathering. <laughs> yeah, no, there's that's always true. like there's... a fucking who's got this one. And there's <laughs> always true. the eye out, yeah, you know, like yeah. what the hell? Who's getting the next set wave? Yeah, it's and always a, a, there's a whole a bunch game. of grommets have been surfing there this summer. They've just piled in, you know, a bunch right. of little thirteen year old kids and it's super funny. They're like already starting to compete with us for waves and uh, I just I love that. It's hilarious. I love the club culture, the tribal thing. That thing's just always been endemic in surfing, and frankly, mm-hmm. it's just endemic in man. Yeah, you know, totally. it's, that's just how the universe is designed, right? Pretty much, it is. It's a really old uh, human trope for sure. But then again, so is the nomad. Mm-hmm. You know, the wanderer. Um, uh, and there's that. There's that trope gets lived out in surfing a lot too. You know, people who set out on their own path. You know, uh, I've great deal of respect for a lot of people who do that it's it's um shows real commitment and courage uh and i know it costs them things in their lives yeah uh, and uh and yet they just a, a lot of people who set out as wanderers and they kind of their eyes are, you know they come back to a civilization where their eyes are kind of a light you know you can yeah. tell they've really been seeing some great things uh, so true yeah, without I'll, them we would all be well it'd be a little bit less rich you know like you mm-hmm. want to see all those human tropes get lived out in your culture you know not yeah. just one or two but like the lot you know? well and it's funny you mentioned that because in some ways pro surfing and its evolution is sort of an offshoot of one of those other human tropes where it's like you put two guys in the water at newport and oh that guy just did a really good turn mm-hmm. i think i could do a better one Completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is the genesis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I and mean, that's a human trait. Yeah, that you just can't. It's hard to get away from. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, look at pro surfing started with you know it started a long time ago. Really, professional surfing in a lot of ways began way back in Hawaii pre-contact. Yeah. Um, when Hawaiians would compete in the surf and they'd bet on it, you know. Yeah. Um, exactly right. But Hawaiians were fortunate; they like they really evolved surfing as a as a culture. Partly because, well, mostly because, not only were they in the best place in the world to do it, but they their workload was so minimal compared to ours. Like, um, there's been estimates um, of the workload of the average Hawaiian person pre-European contact, and it's about four months a year. Mm. I mean, imagine, isn't that, that's kind of like the perfect surfing 
life, really, isn't it? You just you just work every now and then, and then when the waves are good, yeah. you can just take full advantage of it. Um, uh, but when surfing crossed over, crossed that membrane, the cultural membrane between uh, Polynesia and the West, uh, for a long time, nobody really knew what to do with it. Mm-hmm. There were very few surfers between that uh, early 20th century and around 1955, 56. There, were, there really weren't too many surfers in the world. Very special breed, mostly. Um, but then along came the baby boom, and they just blew it up. Yep. But if you got addicted to surfing, right, then you were so buggered because there is nothing about surfing that fits a Western cultural mindset, right? If if you are really addicted to surfing, you, you you just can't work nine to six, right? You know, you 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 can't be enslaved like that, you know. Uh, and, and it's hard to pinpoint an economic value to it. Exactly, and <laughs> and that's the true genesis of professional surfing is right. right there. It's like how the fuck do we make a living out of this, you know? Now a lot of people just went off and like they started, you know, they'd smuggle drugs and they'd yeah. know, go on adventures. Those were the early pro surfers were lifeguards, mm-hmm. you know, Hobies and those guys. They yeah. were all Velzy, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they they made surfboards. And yeah, that was and one way. Boards. But yeah. that sort of sucks because you know what? You to make a good board, make a good living out of making boards, you got to work your <laughs> you gotta, guts out. Exactly. It's just such a burn. And there goes your four month work, <laughs> four <laughs> month a year work deal. Completely. <laughs> Or you know you might start like a little job, you know a little company making board shorts or wetsuits, you yeah. Know, like guys started doing in the late sixties, early seventies, mm-hmm. um, and you know some of them those people grew enormously wealthy. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, not too many of them stayed to be real good surfers. Yeah, I know. You know they kept surfing, but they they didn't rise to the heights of the people who they were giving money to. Right. You know? One of the things that impresses me most about Nick Carroll is just how well he seems to be surfing through life. He's fast approaching 60. On the morning we hooked up, Nick was surfing lowers, battling a thick crowd of surfers that on average were one-third his age. He's as fit and fired up today as I've ever seen him. So I had to ask him about how he stays in shape and so motivated. Explain. Okay, well, uh, this sort of goes back to Jerry Lopez, like freaking everything in surfing, right? <laughs> goes back to Jerry and like, uh, there was a, when I was a kid, I was just being influenced by every single word I read in a surf magazine. And so I read this thing that uh, someone wrote about Jerry that, that, um, you know, while other people were drinking beer and stuff at the at the pipe house, uh, he was he was doing like um, stomach exercises, mm. and uh, the 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 little paragraph or whatever it was ended with Lopez is going for longevity. Yeah, and I, I switched something on in my head. I thought, look, longevity is the key here. You know, like it's all great if you can surf great for like five years when you're 22, but like. I don't want my surfing to stop there, you know, I want it just to keep kind of going, you know, and and I know I'm not going to surf as good when I'm older, but I can surf better than I would if I just sat around. So I I just started doing things to try to stay on it, stay on the case. And, you know, you've got to watch out for injuries and all that stuff. And like a lot of my peers have gone through a lot of trouble with shoulders and knees, Mm -hmm. like 
yeah. little brother's had his had one knee completely replaced, mm. and he's had full shoulder surgery on one shoulder. I've been spared that so far, but I do a lot of a lot of stuff around water. That's a big thing that I do. Is just like around water. I do. So a you're lot. a swimmer. I do a lot of swimming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Quite dedicated at that. Um, how how much are you like on a weekly basis? Would you say, is it mileage? How do you calculate? Okay. Is well, it I'm, time? I'm super goal driven, so I've got to like have goals in order to train. I can't just like mm-hmm. I'm not that zen. I'm not like Jerry. I'm like <laughs> yeah. I'm twitchy and goal oriented. Right. So. You know, I set myself goals to do racing. Like, there's this whole thing in Australia about surf racing. Like, uh, swim races through the surf zone, board paddling races through the surf zone, mm. um, all that stuff. A race called Ironman, which is not that Hawaiian triathlon Ironman thing, but it's more just like a full fast-paced race, swim, run, board, run, and then you paddle these kind of kayak things that are designed for surf, mm. surf skis. Uh, you take that out. So I kind of like... Um, I trained for that like at a national level and so that means you know when I'm sort of really zoning in on that stuff I'm like swimming like just like probably three swim squads a week okay Um, a couple of like hard board paddling sessions a week uh, one or two really dedicated race training sessions where you just work the race segments and just see try to figure it out because it's very you know it's kind of like intricate race that one and then, like right now, I'm I've sort of that spits over, but I'm uh, going to do the Molokai paddle race in uh, you know two and a half months or whatever, and just in a team with a buddy of mine. So you, so the, how often are those races like the one you mentioned in Australia? How often are those like a couple a year? Yeah, it's like I don't know. I probably do like half a dozen a year. Oh wow! Okay. Just in, but in a block, you know, sort of like January to April. Oh okay. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So there's the season. There's the season, but. Really what I do there is is coach. Like I've got a full squad of super hot, hot shot kids um, and I coach them mainly in board racing skills but uh, also in just surf skills generally and iron person racing and um, they're, you know, the best there is pretty much. Like That's awesome. My top gun uh, won the national Ironman this year. Sheesh. And that the open level, that's that's an incredibly difficult race to win. Now, how big of a deal are are things like that <clears throat> in Australia? Because you guys are a, you're a water culture. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of adjunct to surfing in some ways. Um, uh, it's got deep roots. You know, the whole uh, surf club clubby um, culture. Yeah. Clubby culture has got deep roots. Uh, it's not that massive in terms of like. Um, you know, sponsorship or anything like that. It's pretty effective, but there's a lot of people do it. Mm. I think the national title has around maybe 8,000 competitors, something like that. Wow. And in that sense, Jeez, there's a lot. a lot more people competing in that arena than there is in surfing, mm. you know? Yeah, exactly. But there's a lot, probably a lot more surfers. It's just that only a fraction of them compete. Gotcha. Mm. Now, how many times have you done Molokai, that race? Six. May, and so... How far is that paddle? Um, well, they say it's 32 miles. You kind of deviate off that a little bit. So let's just... If you do a real good race, I think you probably do 33. Okay. If you do a shitty race, you do 40 and then you die. <laughs> <laughs> it could be horrible, have you race. Have you done a shitty race before? Like, no. have you, what, what's been, what was your worst experience on, on a mission like that? Uh, worst experience? Fuck, 
maybe like the second or third time I did it, I did it like solo on a stock board, like a 12 foot board. And I got really ready for it. Um, and, but this is one of those things that told me that I was getting older, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, I got into the race and I really power, really tried hard, busted a gut, you know, uh, and just tore into it. And, um, toward the end, my body just like shut down. Like I only got to the end through willpower. No one would have seen that, but I knew I was buggered and I did my best ever time, but my liver stopped working. Ugh. For a day or two, like I couldn't eat. Gnarly. I couldn't digest food. And I had to rest until my body came back to semi-normal. And it was like, you know, so if you go for a run and then you're sort of panting for a little while Mm -hmm. and it lasts like 10 minutes or whatever. Well, imagine that feeling, but it lasts like a couple of days. Oh, my gosh, yeah. (laughs) So I was just like, oh, man, I'm like, I'm 45, like just (laughs) freaking just. You know, you've got to set your goals a little different here, you know? Right. Um, but I've seen people have really bad experiences in that channel and, and just be just tormented by it really badly. Mm. There's always people who pull out during that race. It, it's it's It doesn't take that long, really. Like, what's six hours of your life? It's not that long, but... Well, yeah, but six man, hours, you're pushing pretty hard the whole pushing time. Pushing pretty hard the whole time, and it's exposed open ocean. Do you do it? Have you done it solo every time, or how often have you you soloed it a couple times? Or three solo, three team. Okay, and this year you're going to do a team with yeah. who with, are you doing it with your brother? No, no, no. I'm doing it with a buddy of mine from Australia. He's a you know he's a guy who does the board racing too, stuff, and, yeah. he's, and he's really really good. So um, uh, we'll give it a good crack. I'm sure. How long do you see yourself doing those types of races? You're you're 59. You said. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna. This is a be my the farewell Molokai race, and I'm not going to do that again. What? <laughs> you're done after this one? Yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> But only because it's kind of like, well, you do things a certain number of times and then you yeah. it's like, oh, well, you know what, now What's sort of next? thing. Yeah. I'll probably get a bit further into the swimming, I think. Um, but it's just because it's just so good. It's so rhythmic, meditative. Uh, it's just so... You wouldn't think swimming was an incredible skill, but it really, truly, truly is. Uh, and to swim well is so hard. It's ludicrously difficult. Well, it's funny you say that because... When I was in my competing days, the best I ever felt was when I was staying in your neck of the woods in Newport, mm-hmm. and I was training in the same pool that Tom was training, and he was the one who took Scott Beggs. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peak. He hooked me up with Tom. Tom took me to one of those pools there, and paddling out through just manly, you know, five foot manly, yeah. and not even feeling winded. You know, when I got to the lineup, just yeah. going, "This is the best I've ever felt in my life." Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like when you're. Doing it well, walking around on land just feels so easy. <laughs> oh yeah, jeez. I yeah, I do feel like it's the main advantage of it for a surfer is that it's all about water feel. Yeah, and so uh, all the, the water feeling stuff you do during swimming feeds straight into how you're feeling while you're surfing. Like whether it be paddling or just feeling how water's moving under your board or anything, you just get much more familiar with water. Yeah, but you're um, doing a lot of open ocean swimming too. Yeah, not that much yet. That's sort of what I was thinking I'd get into. Yeah, you know, like a kind lot of, of creepy that. though. The shark scene nowadays, being what it is, I don't really care about them. Yeah, I, I got I got paddle out. You know, a lot of those long long range surf ski paddles are like now Molokai yeah. paddling. Uh huh. See sharks a lot. It's like whatever doesn't bother you. Well, it doesn't seem to bother them. That's the main thing. Yeah, you know, like it's like 
pretty rare. There was one guy down in San Diego, part of a swim crew. Mm-hmm. This was 10, 15 years ago, and he was, you know, pulling up last, and the shark just went after him and bit him in half. Ooh. That was the last guy in Southern California, I think, to, to die. Right. Um, south of Point Conception, anyway. Right. Um, that freaked a lot of people out. It happened right outside of, like, Seaside. Mm-hmm. You know, right there. After that, I was like, eh. <laughs> on the swimming it's, it's tricky that one i know it is and there's dumb. definitely more sharks around now hmm. i don't know if it's more sharks or more people or both i'd say it's a bit of both yeah. i think i think you know people um talk about the shark population in australia right now and you know they're all like oh it must be bigger than they say because gosh there's attacks and stuff but yeah. then they fail to note that um yeah. australia has doubled its population in the last 30 years oh my god and they've and a lot a lot of people live on the coast now compared to what they what used to be the case. A lot of that doubling has happened along the coast and oh. along regional areas, you know, like Ballina and Lennox Head and well, Byron How Bay about Mara River? It's and like, Mara River, way bigger. You know? There was nothing there. It and was, was, now I look at it and I go, holy crap, it's mm. like the North Shore. And people use drones and stuff, you know. They, yeah. There's just way more eyes on the inshore waters than there used to be. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing things that probably were always there, but we just didn't really... They, they, we weren't looking for them, you know. We weren't seeing them. Yeah. There was no watching. Over the years, the bond between Nick and his little brother Tom only grew through both triumph and tragedy. There was Tom's back-to-back world titles in 83 and 84... And then the heartbreaking loss of their sister Joe, who died in a car accident in 1987. Of course, every bond gets tested at some point. When Tom began to spiral into the private hell of drug addiction, Nick grew as frustrated, helpless, and angry as Tom's wife, family, and friends. He tried everything he could to help. He even found the number to Tom's dealer, called him directly and warned him of the mortal consequences if he found him anywhere near his brother. Nick didn't know it then, but he learned later that it wasn't the dealer who picked up the phone. It was Tom. I asked Nick about the lessons they both learned during those difficult years. The thing with someone who's really addicted to a drug of any kind is that um, it's almost like the addict part of them is another person mm. inside them and that addict's person will ruin all that person's relationships in its greed to get hold of what it wants and uh, it's impossible to deal with it if you're a person in that orbit you know mm-hmm. um, you can try and try all you like to save that person can't do it cannot be done you can only prolong the inevitable um, that's all I was able to do with Tom. Mm. Prolong the inevitable. And and he did actually get to rock bottom before uh, something worse happened, you know. Uh, when what happened to Andy happened, mm-hmm. it was very much there, but for the grace of God, go you, Tom. Yeah. You know, uh, it could have been you, mate. Oh, yeah. And uh, he knew it. He was very clear about it. Um, but you Matt get Archie to you get to the same thing too. Archie, I'm sure you know. There's mm-hmm. there's numerous of them. I, like I kind of actually feel it's weird. I feel really like a fellow feeling with every single one of the good surfers who've done that. Because mm-hmm. um, I just feel like it was, you know, I could see it happening with Tom. I I kind of don't feel like I've got that gene, mm. but 
um, I, I just had a fellow feeling for all that crew, you know, I, I still do, you know. Do you think um, it's more difficult for, for guys who enjoyed a, a level of celebrity? Mm. Look, it, it is. it has been in the past really difficult for world champion-type level surfers and, and surfers just under that level to to walk away from the tour. Mm. They just don't know what to do with themselves for a while. And um, if the addict within is there and seething and waiting to come on, that can be fuel to that fire. Uh, but it's going to be hard for you anyway, or it was. You know, it was it was hard for all those guys. They had to find a new place in the world. Uh, it seems to me like now, you know, that's another benefit of um, professional surfers. You know, um, making plenty of money and being surrounded by an entourage. Uh, they're eased into their progression away from pro surfing. Like Fanning has done a, a, a really super clean exit, you know, yeah, perfect. Uh, on his terms. So has Parko just done a really, really clean exit. Taj, too. Taj, super yeah. clean exit. You yeah. know, there's just all this backup. They've got businesses they're running that they're yeah. going to keep ticking over. They, That's what's po- so nice about that generation because Luke, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, Dorian, a yep. bunch of these guys. Yeah. Uh, they, they, it, they're the first generation who really had an easier time of that transition. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, they kind of embraced it because, like, there are there is a point I think for everyone in that in that carnival of the world tour that they kind of get sick of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they would really like to get off it, mm-hmm. and um, it's Parker was certainly like that. He was like. I just want to get out. Oh, I just want it to be over. Can't I just get out of here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can really understand that, right? It's like, you know. He, he almost got a little third win towards the end when his kids, I think, got old enough to travel and enjoy sure. the travel a little bit. So I, it seemed like he got a year or two extra than he even thought he would. He, he, for sure he did. Um, but, you know, then it's just like, oh, man, come on. Help. <laughs> yeah, get me out of here. Yeah. Um, uh, but so I think it's a lot easier now. It wasn't quite so easy earlier because the support wasn't really there and no one really understood mm. what they were getting into. And it's one of the things about pro surfing, it's really hermetic, you know? It doesn't look around and, and take tips from other pro sports mm. or anywhere, really. It's just been a bunch of people blundering into this thing, you know, and then making it up as they go along and, like, sometimes stumbling or outright falling off a cliff, you know? <laughs> so- <laughs> Now, just a, a fair warning, whenever Nick and I get together, the subject is eventually going to turn to pro surfing. So we dug into the topic, starting with me asking him just how damn good today's surfers are and why. Uh, it seems to me they're fitter, stronger, surfing better and more aware of what they're doing than ever before. Uh, they, there are so few distractions. They've, they've got lots of people around them helping them to be great. And uh, their minds are on the task a lot. And there's no doubt in my mind that they're all surfing way better than anyone's ever surfed before. No uh, question, yeah. You know, uh, and people who think otherwise, you just go back and have a look at some of those old videos on YouTube and you'll quickly change your tune about that. Mm-hmm. Some of the best surfing out there is actually happening in the heat. Mm. Oh, completely. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's a big thing. It's like... And it's funny when like um, some of the that level of guy comes down and just, and just plays with other surfers, mm. and you just go, "Holy shit!" Like, 
that um, airborne thing yeah. on the Gold Coast. Like, yep. you know, there's there's all the top aerialist guys and they step in and all of a sudden there's Italo and uh, and Philippe and they just <laughs> blow them out of the water. You yeah. just, just go, holy crap. Right. You know, those guys are doing clips in it, half an hour. Yep. Whereas all these other guys, like they take three weeks to do a clip that, that looks like that, you know? I couldn't agree more. I think honestly, the value of trying to incorporate those characters is more cultural relevance. I think that's prob- perhaps a bit exacerbated by the rise of um, uh, Brazilian surfing to the new heights. Like, there's no question in my mind that um, the Brazilians on tour are entirely dominant now. Like, you go free surfing around the contest now, mm. and they run the free surfs the way the Australians used to. Yeah, you know the the psych they paddle out it's not frothy you know they're right. not they're not trying to work anyone um uh gabriel's the leader it's just he energy got, it's, yeah it's, it's just, just pure energy pure energy yeah. uh they're stoked they're happy they take up places in the lineup they mm. they uh just run the whole surf and mm-hmm. um that's fascinating but it's also like there's not that sense of organic connection to those guys for many australian and american viewers right uh, and that might be fooling some people into thinking that those surfers are off on some other planet. Right. They're really not. Yeah. You know, that's simple. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because, you know, there's no question these guys are better athletes. And now you have this entity that's trying to package them and market them, which everybody's always tried to package them and market them into, like, these mainstream things. But it's like it's a pretty hard push from a, a, a new breed here. <laughs> are we done with the whole surfing being mainstream thing yet? Uh, gave this a lot of thought while we've been researching this book you know and as far as i could tell professional surfing as 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 a marketing tool Mm -hmm. um has only made sense for brief periods yep you know it made a lot of sense at the start for people like smirnoff and coca-cola and and gunston yeah um in south africa uh, because it was new and the novelty would catch people's attention and it felt like it was hooked into a culture that nobody really understood and therefore it was kind of cool, you know, a bit yep. rock and roll and all that. Um, and then it kind of vaguely stopped making sense for a little while. And then it um, it really started making sense again when the surf companies grew big enough to start really bankrolling it. Um, now, Which you, was an exciting period when the webcasts were brand new mm-hmm. and they were all trying to outdo each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now... You talk to the guys who ran those surf companies at that time, mm-hmm. the owners, and you ask them, like, did it make sense to spend, you know, $50 million a year on running the world tour? And they'll say, we could never have come up with a business reason to do it. Right. That, that we only ever did it because we felt like we were enmeshed in the culture of surfing and that we loved it and it was important to continue that, you know? Yeah. Um, but it also relied on them having enough money just to easily cough it up, you know, and they really did. Honestly, to me, it really made sense then for a while. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it'll ever make the kind of mainstream thing. You know, I'm, I'm almost certain it will never do that. It's 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 tried every single way of doing that, and um, there'll be what, st- there'll be select stories that come out of it. I mean, look, Kelly, the, the biggest know. news, yeah, but the biggest biggest news story that came out of pro surfing ever, and I don't think it'll ever be surpassed. And I'll, I'll explain why is mixed shark attack, right? And as somebody who was working with a bunch of the sort of mainstream front page news teams at the time, uh, pitching them on a daily basis, hmm. 
one of the things that I learned during that period was what the best filters are for how to get a story on their home pages. And it was pretty simple. There were three criteria, three pillars, familiarity, impact, and oddity. Mm. Now, if you had a story that ranked pretty high on any of those scales, you had a good shot of getting somewhere up there on the homepage, maybe not up top. Yep. But if your story ranked high on all three of those scales, it's a freaking grand slam. Such a home run. Here you have a world champ getting attacked by a shark <laughs> in the middle of a heat. Yeah. Not only that, it was a slow news day. <laughs> so he gets on there. And there's nothing else going on. It was the biggest story, not just here, but across the world for three days. He rode that thing for 72 hours. Right. Anyway, my point is, I know what those numbers were. I know what the visibility was and the traction was. I looked at the analytics and all that stuff. And there is nothing that will come close to that until Kelly Slater, you know, doesn't air into the machinery at his wave pool and gets eaten by it. <laughs> Oh, goodness me, imagine that. <laughs> that really, man, that put some scary thoughts into my head. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, to me, I don't, there's more than one sports model. Yeah. You know, and you don't have to be the NBA. You really don't. Um, what you do need is a passionate audience of some kind. And um, I think that's probably been the WSL's risk. It certainly was at first that they might, just alienate the actual audience, the surfers and the passionate aficionados out there. Right. Um, uh, because that audience may not be huge, but it's their passion which keeps the whole thing ticking. Yep. There are like literally hundreds of thousands of kids in Brazil mm -hmm. who are going to remember this current era of professional surfing. As, as the most exciting part of their life. The most exciting part, not just of their own lives, yeah. but of the entirety of surfing's existence. <laughs> Right, <laughs> yeah, like totally. the best shit ever. Yeah, you know, and uh, uh, you just you can't lose sight of that, man. There's, yeah. there's there's a lot of people in surfing that none of us really know. So, um, if you start with that, and you work around it, and you work around the other powerful things about surf culture, mm -hmm. that can that can kind of be enough. You know, that that can be enough to sustain things. You will never make money out of running surf contests. Right. They are they are a, they are a money loser. Yep. That I think is what the WSL is really a bit baffled by. Maybe um, it's tricky. They've got the wave pool. I guess they're hoping to kind of like really make a deal out of that over the next five years or so. Mm -hmm. um, but that requires colossal investment. Yeah. And uh, there's, you know, while it seems like. Kelly's one up Lemoore is kind of self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. They have those revenue days up there where they charge yeah, uh, slightly slightly dumb rich people $50,000 a day. <laughs> Good luck, fellas. I'm yeah. gonna, you could just go down Lowers for free, but whatever. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, you know, uh, they, they can sustain that. They, if they can keep that ticking. Pro sports generally often are not profitable. Mm. You know, they are actually just gigantic cyclones of money mm -hmm. which form around the low-pressure system of all that talent, right. you know? And the money just whirls around. It gets sucked in from all sorts of different sources. Yeah. And then as it flies past, other people grab bits of it, you know? And whether they run at profits or loss, once you get that cyclone going, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. You, you know, the cyclone's going. It's self-perpetuating. 
and you just the work is in keeping it going once it's formed. You know, the WSL's arrival, it was almost a bailout, you know? <laughs> the brands that were really had kind of born this thing and kept it going for 40 years were cratering at the time. They really didn't even have the money to keep it going at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, professional surfers always know a chance when they see it. They are awesome opportunists, <laughs> you know. They are really great at flattering people yeah. by their presence. You're right. And uh, they're just so attractive to people in the right context. And uh, they've brought people to surfing through their sheer magnetism over the years, over many years, you know. But um, surfing no longer has that weird luster of being something completely new the way it did in the early 1970s, say. That's fine. That's just how it is. Uh, the advantage it has over a lot of other sports is it's in an environment that not everybody understands well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's you know that environment led to that crazy super moment when Mick was hit by that shark. Exactly. It, that may have just been an accident on the shark's part. Just traffic accident. Yeah. Just a traffic accident. But holy shit, it right. was so real. Oh, you know, yeah. it was it was it was not like anything that happens. Uh, on a baseball field uh, <laughs> and um you know uh that's that's a thing that's unique to surfing and and it will continue to be you know because not everybody can do it um i'm pretty sure the wsl's starting to figure that maybe it's maybe they've got to change the format up and kind of modernize it a mm -hmm. bit you know yeah and there's various ways of doing that and i'm sure they'll figure it out i guess my concern is that by the time that takes hold that change I hope it's not too late, you know, for exactly. Dirk Ziff. Like, he's he's been almost single-handedly sustaining the money cyclone of pro surfing. So, um, if if a new format and some other changes they might make brings along some more people willing to throw money into that cyclone, yeah, then um, it could sustain really well. But there comes a time for everyone, like the the classic good pro surfers' career uh -huh. lasts around ten years. I reckon just, that's about as long as this WSL era can last without having more people jump in and start chucking money at it in a serious way. Yeah. If it doesn't happen by then, you know. Right. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I, I think it's going to be pedaled to the metal at least through the Olympics. And then there's going to be a serious analytics discussion. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> I'm sure there will be. Okay. Um, before we wrap, I want to talk to you about, I think what's obviously one of the most intriguing trends of the last 10 years, especially for guys like you and me who've been covering the sport for so long, and that is the the progress being made with the women. Mm, completely. And I know we spoke offline a little bit earlier, and you said one of the best things about the book project and one of the most intriguing things about it is the stories you've been digging up about these women who were there from the very get-go just trying to make things happen yeah, and the stuff they had to deal with. Um, so just give me some of your thoughts as you lean into that subject. Okay. Well, one of the things that I thought at the start when we went into this book idea was that like we have to be careful about this because the tendency in modern surf media, and in fact it's been in surf media from the start of professional surfing and perhaps from the start of modern surfing itself, the tendency has been to ignore the women's stories. Just put them out of the way. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's been 
heaps of women surf through that whole period and there's been uh you know whole generations of women pass through professional surfing it's the the story of women in pro surfing is full of extremely um vigorous feisty uh strong-minded women um who created their own fun in the face of a lot of male opposition and they went about it with the same passion and the same stoke as any of the men and uh many of them gained the respect of the men through that uh in ways that many of the people reading the magazines um of the time or watching the surf movies of the time would never have guessed at you know because no, you talk about <laughs> stories that haven't been told <laughs> i mean it's just Ooh, okay. I, well, I imagine you've well, got some incredible anecdotes. <laughs> so. Okay. Has anyone out there ever heard of Patty Panicha? Nope. Okay. Patty Panicha was the first organizer of women's pro surfing. Um, she was a girl from Huntington Beach uh, who'd moved to Hawaii with her parents when she was 13 or so in the late 1960s. And she'd started surfing in Huntington and then she just kept surfing in Hawaii and she became part of a, like a handful of girls who used to surf the North Shore in the early 1970s. Mm. So they, they, the girls in Hawaii formed this group called the Hawaiian Women's Hui. And the Hawaiian Women's Hui was like a surf club for girls. And they did everything. Like they, they run ding repair classes, all just for, for young girls, right? And had competitions and all that sort of stuff, right? Amazing. And... uh Patty was the contest director for the Hawaiian Women's Hui. And around this time, Fred Hemmings decided that, you know, with the prompting of his Smirnoff marketing buddy, a guy called Greg Reynolds from uh, Hubeline Incorporated, mm-hmm. decided that it'd be a really cool idea to have a woman in the mix in their contest, the Smirnoff. Mm. And this was right after Battle of the Sexes and the whole deal. Totally. This this is totally connected <laughs> up with Billie Jean King's rise to power and right. the Battle of the Sexes and, and yeah. all that stuff. Uh all happening at the same time, right? So Fred went, Okay, yeah, we yeah, he's got a great marketing brain, Fred. He really see saw the opportunity, even though he himself is just an old dog like the rest of every <laughs> mm. guy of his age <laughs> right. and era. Um but he went, Wow we got to have a girl in the Smirnoff. That'd be great. So he picked Laura Blears Ching, right? Mm. And um, so Patty and the other girls in the Hawaiian Women's Hui were a bit like, well, well, Laura rips, but like, why her? Why'd you pick her, you know? Mm. And uh, they were figuring that it was for the same reason that later on Playboy picked Laura to be a centerfold because mm. uh, she's damn good looking, right? Mm. Um, and uh, so anyway, the, the Hui said to Patty, all right, you've got to go and, like, get hold of Fred and tell him what's up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she did. She's um, she's not a big human, like, size-wise, Patty. Uh-huh. Uh, but her parents are New Jersey Italians. And so she's scrappy. Right. And so she went into battle with Fred. And Fred was at first was like, well, you can't tell me what to do. But he was intrigued by this... <laughs> Yeah. Girl was yeah. giving him shit, you know? Right. And so Patty gave him enough shit that eventually Fred evolved the first women's pro events on the North Shore mm. and he expanded the whole thing out. And when it came time to run the IPS tour, he, he appointed Patty the women's director of the IPS tour for uh, three years running. Wow. And then she stepped aside 
and Patty Penich's story continues. She um, moved back to California. She went to Pepperdine University, did a law degree. Uh, she then moved into journalism, became one of CNN's first uh, hotshot on the ground reporters. Wow. She reported the Rodney King riots from on the ground mm. in the middle of South Central. Her brother was a commander. They're like cops. Wow. And so they found themselves standing in a corner, probably Florence <laughs> and Normandy, and just looking at each other going, what are we doing here? <laughs> but Patty loved it. She always said later that, uh, you know, she she thought like she was she was both scared and thrilled by Big Surf and she sort of felt the same thing with that reporting game. Awesome. Yeah. And, and is she in L.A.? Where is she now? Uh, she lives in um, uh, the Los Angeles area and she's now an adjunct law professor at Pepperdine. And, um, Unbelievable. She wrote a fantastic book called Work Smarts for Women, the Essential Sex Discrimination Guide, after she got involved in a lawsuit with CNN when she became pregnant with her third child and they laid her off. Wow. She took him to the court, won the case. No way. So, Patty Panicia, that's bigger freaking deal than any male pro surfer who's ever lived and you've never heard her name. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> I can't wait for that chapter. Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah. a chapter? No, nah, it's just bits. Yeah. You know, the thing about pro surfing is it is just a whirlwind. It's, it's and, so and it hard. it sucks so many people up into that whirlwind and you've just got to try to pick your way through that and you can't. It's bummer because there's been 18,000 pro surfers that's people who've that's competed in pro surfing events, right? Holy moly, yeah. Can't tell all their stories. No. Got to just try and tell a few that really try to represent the whole. Well, Nick, man, I know you have a tight schedule, and I could do this with you all day because <laughs> you could just keep rambling, but <laughs> it's been awesome. And um, I wish you the best on the um, on the rest of that project. It sounds fascinating. I, I can't wait, and I've, I've told Sean, obviously, the same thing, and... Um, he seems to be pretty busy down there doing the fight for the bite. That, yeah, which is man, he's another... got a lot in his plate right now, Sean. I, uh, amazing you know, effort, though, what he's doing. Amazing effort. He's he's um, he's really shown a side of himself to me that I didn't really ex- think existed. Like <laughs> he's so passionately environmentalist, and and he's he's furious about the damage being done to the world right yeah. now, especially in uh, the cause of trying to tear up unsustainable resources yeah and uh he's really committed to it he's going in hammer and tongs i'm stoked for him I'll, i'll back him up yeah 100 percent um i appreciate it. it's been really fun going down memory lane <laughs> well thank you chris i appreciate the opportunity um and i feel like when you write about things then you should also be willing to be grilled about them yeah. So thanks for, thanks for the opportunity, mate. Absolutely. And um, hopefully we could do this again in six months or so next time on your next visit. Right on. Thanks. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Nick is an amazing human being and somebody who I am super grateful for. If you guys really like the show, there are two things you could do to really help me create some more of these. Number one, give it a good five-star review on iTunes, and even better, if you write a favorable review. Number two, send a link to one of your friends, especially if it's somebody who likes to go spend an hour working out or you know they have a long commute. It's the best time to actually sit down and plug in. You guys are the best marketing tools I have, so I really appreciate you spreading the word. Thanks again for listening. Looking forward to getting you new episodes and bringing these to you at a faster clip. 
Be sure to follow us on Instagram at People Who Surf Show, and you can check out PeopleWhoSurf.com for links and more information about each episode. See you next time. Now go get some waves. Mm-hmm.